welcome and thank you all for standing by. This call has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. This call is being recorded, and all or part of the audio portion, including the question and answer portion, may be used for replay and or other related J.P. Morgan purposes. If you do not wish to be included in the audio documentation, please remain on the line in the listen-only mode. And now, let me hand the meeting over to Jim Reedy. You may begin. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Jim Reedy, and I'm a client advisor here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to introduce my colleagues, Tushka Maharaj and Patrick Showitz, who are both global strategists from our multi-asset solutions group. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into one of the four theme papers that was published as part of our 2021 long-term capital market assumptions. The paper, titled Debt, Debt Everywhere, the Implications of a High Debt World, can be found in your meeting invite and on our website at www.jpmorgan.com institutional slash LTCMA. As a bit of background, our long-term capital market assumptions cover a period of 10 to 15 years, approximately two business cycles, and the large increase in government debt that we saw this year as a result of the pandemic had a significant impact on our assumptions. And I know it's been on the minds of a lot of my clients as they work through their own CMAs and portfolio construction exercises. During today's conversation, we'll discuss that increase in debt across both developed and emerging markets and the implications for a variety of asset classes. I'll pose some questions that I've been hearing from clients to Patrick and Pushka. That should take about 30 minutes, and then we'll open the line to your questions. If you would prefer not to ask a question over the phone, feel free to send us an email at jpmam.info at jpmorgan.com. Again, that's jpmam.info at jpmorgan.com. So let's begin. Tushka and Patrick, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. So let's start here. We've seen a significant increase in debt levels across both developed and emerging markets. To level set, can you just put those debt levels in context relative to history? Thanks, Jim. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right, and that was really the motivation for, for actually writing this paper um, when it got to, to uh, doing our capital market assumptions this year. It's really wherever you look, uh, across asset classes, across countries, um, we are seeing extreme rises in debt. Um, you know, it depends exactly whose definition you look at, but we're certainly getting back to, to record levels of, of government debt, certainly in in developed markets that you know we haven't really seen since the immediate post World War World War Two areas uh, era, and it, it's not just governments; it's it's also um, corporations. So depending on whether you look at it from a credit perspective, certainly for in the investment grade universe, you're seeing rising debt levels. If you look at it as an equity investor, you're seeing, um, depending which country you look at, very very strongly rising debt debt levels as well. And just to sort of uh, you know, put it in, into perspective a little bit. Um, if you look at the numbers from the IMF, it's just interesting what, what COVID has, has really done to it and all the support that um, governments have, have really thrown at the population and in terms of the fiscal, fiscal stimulus and income support. Um, the IMF numbers are actually quite illuminating. Is one that, that's stuck in my mind. So um, they've got advanced economies at 83%. Um, net debt to GDP, 
pre-pandemic, so that's the 2019, and then we've got 104% by the end uh, by the end of this year. So there's a 20 percentage point increase just to deal with with the pandemic, um, and you know that, those are numbers that we haven't seen in a in a long time. I mean, emerging markets is actually um, in a similar story. It's, it's not as big an increase, and generally, uh, and, and uh, traditionally. Those countries clearly can't tolerate as high a debt level, but, but we're still seeing that up to up to 50% of GDP there. And um, a lot of the listeners might, might remember, um, you know, after the great financial crisis, this discussion that came up, the famous book that uh, two academics called Reinhardt and, and Rogoff wrote, and they, they sort of made that 90% threshold uh, debt to GDP very, very famous basically saying if once you hit that and go beyond that, it, it starts hurting um, the economic growth potential quite hard. Um, and, you know, it's pretty clear that, we, that we're going, going beyond this. Um, you know, these days people aren't so sure that really your growth is going to suffer that much, or maybe it's low growth that actually causes the high debt level. So it's, it's not so clear where, where that causality, causality runs. But clearly... One thing we are seeing across the world is there's just, you know, high tolerance for that. People, investors, governments, the population, everyone seems to have kind of resigned themselves to it. And, uh, you know, a couple of drivers here, um, I think it's clearly that central banks have been fighting low inflation, have been responding to crisis with, with low interest rates, and that's, that's pushed that levels up. That's clearly... Uh, one driver. I think aging societies and the search for income probably has have a lot to deal with it as well. Um, inequality is probably another driver as as parts of society have have leveraged up to kind of uh, keep up their their um, living standards. Um, but you know, I think there's actually also a more fundamental reason out here that you know those those reasons may not sound so positive. I think there's also a good reason here. Um, we've written uh, about this in, in previous years in the LCCMAs. There's also a drop in actual underlying economic volatility going on as well. So, you know, there's there's one good reason at least that we can that we can point to as as, as low economic volatility probably should allow you to carry carry higher level of debt. Um, Fuska, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Uh, I guess the only thing I'd add in terms of uh, where we see the constraints, because that's part of the uh, the question we're getting on higher indebtedness. Yes. Uh, you know, in our in our LTCMAs, we we are assuming debt levels remain high in equilibrium, so over that 10 to 15 year time frame across both sovereigns and uh, and corporate sectors. And actually, in one of the uh, theme papers this year, talking about the fiscal decade, we look at what are the constraints on the levels of indebtedness. And actually, we find it's not necessarily the level of debt to GDP that are in isolation that we should focus on, but also the interest or debt servicing costs are just as important. And as you highlight there, Patrick, interest rates are being anchored by central banks and keeping those debt servicing costs low. And in that environment, uh, maintaining high debt is, 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 is possible. Uh, I would note that when we look back at interest costs uh, back in 2008, they were twice as high. They are now twice, you know, they're actually higher than the levels we have today, even though debt levels have risen as significantly as you highlighted there, Patrick. So, you know, the conundrum is that higher indebtedness has come alongside lower lower interest or servicing costs, and that's, uh, that's helping sustain this higher indebtedness. 
So, Patrick, with such a significant increase in debt levels, one of the questions at the top of my clients' minds has been around inflation. Can you talk a little bit about how the increasing debt load affected our projections for inflation over the next 10 to 15 years? Yes, it's, it's clearly one, one of the key, the key questions here. And I think we should um, keep, uh, get one thing out there out, out front. It is pretty clear that the high debt loads will basically um, you know, push policymakers towards deliberately keeping uh, the level of real interest rates low, especially at, at the short end of the curve, uh, essentially to make sure that all that, that debt is, is actually sustainable or can, can be carried as, as such is out there. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also a question that if, if uh, downward pressures on growth persist, which is not necessarily given, but it's a possibility, you know, low interest rates may actually be coming down just because, because growth is, is low too. So that's another factor to it. And the logic is, is clearly appealing, right, um, that, uh, you know, we'll be trying to get a bit of inflation here and try to deal, to deal with um, – with, with that debt level, but there's clearly one big counter example to this year, and that and that one's called Japan. Um, if you look at that, really, uh, you know, we've had huge debt levels at the end of of their bubble in the in the late 80s, um, and and it's really not led to inflation. It's actually led led to deflation, and and the Bank of Japan pioneered many of the of the tools that that other central banks then then started to started to use. Clearly. The circumstance was pretty unique. They had they had an enormous bubble just at the time as the demographics turned turned unfavorable. But you know the fact that or, or the possibility that we might get Japanification can, cannot be cannot be uh, ruled out either. Um, the the counter argument to that would be well if everybody does the same thing at the same time in terms of uh, in terms of keeping interest rates low around the world, then maybe eventually we'll be successful in creating inflation. But um, in, in doing our forecast this year for, for the long-term capital market assumptions, we sort of looked a little bit at, at um, how we see the drivers for inflation evolve over the next 10 to 15 years, which is, which is our time horizon. And I have to say, at our front, in the end, we didn't really uh, uh, increase our, our inflation forecast much. So we left, we left them roughly unchanged, but we see a lot more risk, a lot more risk around it. And, and why do we leave them unchanged? I guess the point is we see downside risk actually in the next couple of years, saying the earliest of a, of a forecast period. Clearly, uh, coming out of the COVID recession, there's still a lot of slack in the economy. So, you know, the very near term, it will take a lot of time to, to soak that up and, and even allow us to think about inflationary pressures. Demographics are still pretty negative going forward. Um, that, that will persist for a couple of years. And then also, um, you know, we're on a phone call here, but I spend most of my days on, on, on Zoom these days. Clearly, COVID has forced um, a lot of accelerated technology adoption, and we're only just uh, seeing, seeing um, where, where that goes. So we kind of think in the next couple of years that will still be, um, that will still be uh, a push downwards on, on inflation. Um, and then the thing, once we start looking further out, they call it, years 5 to 15 of our 10 to 15 year forecast, we see some of those might be, might be reversing. The demographics will actually at some point um, no longer be a drag as they, as they level out. Um, globalization, you know, might go, might go into reverse actually, and that, that might uh, um, start, uh, take, 
take the downward pressure off a little bit. Um, and then you're clearly getting more fiscal spending and more coordination um, of, of monetary fiscal policy. So that's, that's really where we're starting to see in the longer run that might increase the risk of, of inflation um, to the upside. Climate change might be another thing that pushes into that direction in, in, in the longer run. Um, I have to say what we've done in terms of our forecast, we haven't really changed the, uh, as I said, the inflation level much. What we have done, though, is when it comes to our fixed income return numbers, we've increased the, the inflation risk premium that we think investors will demand um, for holding government bonds. So we think there is certainly an impact that you can see that you can see early on. As, as people, as this question shows, as people get more get more worried about inflation, that they might actually start demanding more of a premium embedded in, in bond yields. Great. Thanks, Patrick. So, Dushko, let's turn to you and zero in on U.S. credit markets. One of the key themes of the paper is that this cycle will look very different than the last one for U.S. corporate credit, primarily because of the unusually high degree of leverage at this early stage of the cycle. Can you discuss the effect that had on our assumptions and then also how clients should think about positioning their portfolios in light of that higher leverage profile? Sure. Thanks, Jim. Um, Yeah, as you say, we looked across uh, both credit and equity markets in this uh, debt thematic article. And on the credit side, uh, particularly in U.S. credit, I'd say two main things um, in terms of impact on our assumptions. One, in the uh, investment grade space, um, we saw that coming into this year, we had leverage increasing from one times to over 2.5 times uh, uh, debt to EBITDA or debt to earnings ratios. So that happened uh, in 2020, uh, in response to this, in response to this crisis, so you know more more than uh, a doubling of of leverage ratio. So a starting point was already very challenged on on leverage. Uh, this basically keeps our equilibrium assumption wider than what we've seen in in uh, in historical terms. Our investment grade equilibrium assumption is set at 160 basis points, which was there last year. But we kept it at that level, and it's about 40 basis points wider than what we've seen over the last last 20 years. That concentration of the lower quality end, the triple B part of IG, as well as the higher duration of this index, has kept our equilibrium spread wide. And I'd say that also reflects the theme of uh, higher indebtedness being with us into equilibrium. So that's one one aspect that uh, uh, is a headwind to our returns for IG. The second, in terms of high yield, there we saw offsetting factors. So on the one hand, yes, uh, credit quality and and the risks of having more defaults uh, or having more downgrades to a triple C type of rating because of higher leverage and higher indebtedness, but equally that being offset by uh, more movement from IG into high yield into that safer double B bucket. And so we saw these as offsetting factors. In equilibrium, we are seeing a higher concentration of corporates in that higher quality part. So on average, we'd expect high yield, um, the high yield composition to have a slightly better average quality than we've had over the last 10 years. And that kept our equilibrium spread numbers around 500 basis points. We didn't change that because of these offsetting factors. How did this translate then into how we think about 
credits within our LTCMA framework, we are seeing high yield returns actually looking attractive, both on an outright basis. We have a 4.8% average annual expected return for U.S. high yield. So this was as of the end of September when we take our data slice. Uh, that you know that is reasonable on an absolute basis. But what's interesting is now screening attractive relative to even our U.S. large cap equity market return. So that that uh, that credit premium is um, is is attractive on a cross asset basis. What we are also noting though is that expected volatility or the um, the downside risks with these high-yield bonds is also commensurately going up. So um, it is attractive to be holding these assets on a long-term basis, but basically the negative tail risk scenarios of that high indebtedness impact on, on spreads and their behavior in times of stress uh, also needs to be accounted for. So we did a, pay, uh, a research thematic article last year in the LTCMAs about uh, negative skew, about covariance and uh, uh, conditional VAR ratios instead of purely looking at sharp ratios. And I'd say that's particularly important for credit in a high, high, high debt world. Great. So, Patrick, let's move to equity markets then. On the one hand, higher levels of debt should enable continued elevated payouts to shareholders through dividends and buybacks. On the other hand, higher interest payments should be a drag on net margins. So can you talk through what you think the overall effect on equity markets will be and whether some regions will be impacted more than others? Thanks, Jim. Yes, uh, again, really, really good and an important question. Clearly, what we have seen in, in, in equity markets um, uh, for a while is, is rising debt levels at, uh, um, and to some degree to, to finance uh, shareholder payouts, as, as you as were already hinting at, and it's clearly been the most dominant feature in, in, the, in the U.S. But if you look at that, if you look at that overall as, as a whole, how all of these, these things net up, I think the frustrating answer for an equity investor actually is a little bit, it depends. It depends on, on how, the different, how the different factors actually offset each other and how the timing of them com, comes together. So if you sort of break it down, in, in margins, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, higher debt levels, clearly, um, you know, sectoris paribus mean lower margins as you have a higher higher interest cost. But, of course, it depends on what the interest rate does. Um, and, and we expect, of course, interest rates to stay low for, for a long time, but, but eventually they should rise um, together with high debt levels. That should, that should hit margins. Um, depends a little bit whether companies will be reducing reducing those debt burdens and how the timing of that interplay. So our gut, our gut feeling is that companies, or the corporate sector in aggregate this time around, won't be as aggressive in, in, in um, or at all aggressive in reducing debt levels as, as it normally is after recession again, um, because of all the support that it has, and, and it's not not really been been hugely urgent. Um, when they do it, um, you know that that might might um, then become a question of how it um, finances the, the the buybacks and the payouts that we that we've come to rely on, and that's really been a feature um, in our long-term capital market assumptions for many 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 years. Again, especially in the U.S., what companies have been doing, they've essentially been borrowing um, at the cost of capital, a cost of debt that that's way way lower. 
um, and the cost of equity, and essentially I've been paying it out to shareholders, and that boosts the, ret- uh, the return on, uh, on, on equity. Um, and, you know, to some degree, that is a reaction to a low-growth economy. How do you boost your, uh, your profitability, your return on equity? Um, that's one way of doing it, as long as the debt markets allow you to, to basically do that capital, that capital arbitrage. Um, so, you know, high debt levels in that sense are actually, actually beneficial as long as long as you, as, as you can keep, uh, as long as you can keep doing that. And it clearly plays into, into another subject that's, um, that's very hot at the moment in, in equity markets, which is evaluations. Clearly, if companies are able to, to boost their profitability, their return on equity that way, um, that also in some, in some ways justifies a higher PE multiple on, on the market. So, um, that's, that's all, that's all beneficial. Um, so, you know, the question is again, can companies keep, keep doing that? And at, at the moment, we, we don't think there is, a, um, you know, a particular stop to that. There might be some political pushback, clearly. Um, companies that have been bailed out, um, say, um, you know, the transport sector and anywhere like that, clearly there might be some political pressure at some point to, to not do as many buybacks. So um, that, that remains to be seen. But all of that, you put all of that together, okay, like I said, it sort of depends a little bit on, on how the timing of these works together. But I think it will all be dominated by whether it actually is positive or negative for the top line. Operation gearing is so dominant in, in these things that actually if higher debt levels and higher debt accumulation allows governments to spend more, allows companies to spend more, and in the end actually drives faster sales growth, that will actually outweigh all, all of these other factors. And, and higher sales growth will, will, at, will at the end of the day be positive um, for equity returns, and, and in fact, if it leads to stagnation, that would be the other way, which is why I said it's a little bit of a frustrating depends. It really, really is an equity more of a question. Is it good for the economy? Does it mean faster growth? Does it mean faster top lines? And then, then it will be a positive um, and, and, and vice versa. You also asked, asked about regions, and, and it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I've already, I've already touched on it, the U.S. has clearly been the most affected, the most affected region in, in the world where companies have really been fairly aggressively um, playing this capital arbitrage and, and raising, raising their debt levels. So clearly if, if they run into, into sort of ceiling of that anywhere in the world, it would be in the U.S. Um, funnily enough, the, the country at the other end of the spectrum where, uh, is, is, is Japan, which had its debt issues a few decades ago, and they've been paying paying down debt um, ever since. And actually, the median company in Japan is sitting on sitting on net cash. So, you know, there's there's certainly a region that that could raise its payouts and and and, and start the trend or follow the U.S. in in that trend, and that would be a good thing. Thanks, Patrick. So we're getting a lot of questions coming in over email. Why don't we finish with this one last question? Most of the people listening to this call are asset allocators, and the two of you both sit on a team responsible for multi-asset portfolios. What changes has our multi-asset solutions team made to its portfolios as a result of the new debt landscape we're living in? Yeah, I'll, I'll kick us off on, uh, on this and then uh, ask Patrick to, to weed in here as well. I think the first, first part of this is in, a, in this new world where we are expecting more fiscal 
activism, uh, we expect that to come alongside very strong monetary stimulus to keep real interest rates low. So I'd say that the first impact is on our views that we expect bond yields to be pretty anchored in this, in this environment where central banks are there as facilitators for this, uh, for this higher sovereign indebtedness. Um, and so that financial repression argument is, is, is anchoring those long-term yields. The other sort of takeaway on core duration is this idea that uh, with more active fiscal policy, you know, already depressed starting yields, our, our concerns in the LTCMAs about the long-term ex- uh, expected returns in core bonds where they are pretty challenged, and this risk that we're highlighting around inflation, it's not built into our base case, but, it's a, but it is a, uh, a risk over the intermediate term. We've seen this as hampering um, the pure role of duration as ballast, as a diversifier in balanced portfolios. It is constraining its ability to act as, as, uh, as an effective hedge or an effective diversifier as it did in previous crises. And so, you know, we're thinking about other ways of diversifying or adding safety into uh, into balanced portfolios, whether that's looking at more active currency management, whether that's trying to build in more inflation protection within portfolios, and also uh, thinking about substitutes for core duration in, uh, in in our in our multi-asset books of business. So, you know, that's that's I'd say one 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 effect. The other is in terms of currency, um, we are. Uh, focused on this view for a weaker dollar. We've had the secular view for a while within the LTCMAs, and now I'd say from a cyclical perspective, uh, we're seeing higher conviction in that view. And how do I link it to the fiscal um, uh, theme and and this new debt landscape? I'd say I'd link it through the uh, announcements here in Europe, where we've had the European Recovery Fund being announced um, by EU authorities. This is a very different landscape for uh, fiscal policy in Europe than we had back in 08 or even in the European sovereign crisis. And for us, this is a key tenant for uh, a stronger euro over the intermediate term. Some of that's baked into prices, uh, but we expect this to be a theme uh, with us for, for the few, next few years. And again, that high indebtedness is not just a U.S. phenomenon. And now with Europe, with its fiscal, uh, uh, you know, pan-wide fiscal program, we think that further supports the euro. So in currency space, we translate this theme into a, a broad-based weaker dollar, but also a focused one relative to the euro. Uh, and uh, in terms of credit markets, as, I, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, using, you know, looking at high yield as, um, as providing equity-like returns, there could be regions of volatility within high yield because of high indebtedness. Uh, but as long as central banks are there anchoring those real rates, uh, we are we are seeing how you're providing attractive carry. I'll pass to Patrick on the on the equity front. Yeah, th- thanks, Jessica. I, I guess in, in equities again, it, it all comes down to to that valuation question. Um, you know, as, as we all know, equities look look pretty expensive here in in absolute terms. So if you if you look at PEs or, or price to book ratios. Um, you know, you, you could get you could get quite quite worried, and that is one of the factors that leads us to have relatively low equity return forecasts in, in a long-term capital market assumptions in, in in the long run. But you know, clearly equities are not expensive relative to relative to government bonds, and 
if you put that into the context of the uh, of a high debt world, the common driver between the two clearly in some way is is a low interest rate. And uh, you know, low interest rate in in, in, a, in the equity world and the discounted cash flow term justifies a higher PE. Nobody quite knows how, how much higher than um, than um, history might suggest, but you know, it seems plausible that it would that it would be higher. And um, you know, we factored that in to our long-term return assumptions uh, to some extent. Um, you know, we don't want to be overly aggressive. But um, you know, returns would be would be even lower if we, um, than, than we have if you hadn't factored that in. On a more immediate, um, shorter time frame, um, you know, clearly we we are now getting into into new market phase um, from here, where the markets you know we've had seen very very strong returns this year, but you know they've all been uh, built on rising valuation in anticipation of of earnings growth. Now that the earnings growth is likely to come through and should be very, very strong in 2021, you should start seeing PEs and valuations come back down. But, you know, there's clearly an expectation that, um, you know, they won't come back down as much as they would do if, if interest rates were, were higher, if interest rates were allowed to rise as, as, they, as they naturally might in, in a rebounding um, economy. And, Insofar as they're being held lower by debt levels, that probably allows valuations to stay a bit higher, equity returns to be a little bit better than than they otherwise would be over over the next year or two. Great. So we are just over the 30-minute mark. Why don't we open the line for questions? Haley, can you remind participants how to ask a question? Thank you, speakers. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, you may dial star and then one. Kindly record your first name when prompted. To cancel, you may dial star and then two. One moment, please, for the questions. And remember, you can also ask a question by sending an email to jpmam.info at jpmorgan.com. So, Let's start with a question that came in over email. This listener gets extra credit for including a Mad Magazine reference. So the question is, since zombie companies can easily get financing in this current Alfred E. Newman, what, me worry world, when does the worry begin? Money is free. What are the likely catalysts for non-free money? Well, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that one, but uh, thanks, Jim. Well, I think that the big question, if we put it again in the context of, of uh, what Sushka was, was laying out in terms of a world of more aggressive um, fiscal involvement by governments, more aggressive fiscal stimulus, I think the big question really is where does that money get spent? And does that, that, um, that money that the government spent, does it basically lead to higher growth? Does it actually create productivity as in, are these good investments that actually benefit the economy and, and potential growth rates in, in the long run? Um, or does it just increase inflation if it's, if it's basically not, not spent wisely? And I think the ramifications from that um, are, are, are very, very different. And basically, if that, that's, I guess, the, the key worry, and we're back to the inflation question, if the money is, is, is spent un, unwisely and it just leads to higher, higher inflation, then eventually it will uh, lead to um, well, it will lead to high uh, interest rates, 
And I guess that is where that sustainability starts starts being um, starts being questioned. So really, what what you know what you need to do is you need to keep your interest rate lower than the growth rate um, to keep your debt you keep your debt sustain, uh, sustainable. An inflation spike um, that that's caused by by unwise government fiscal largesse, I guess, would be the, the the sort of key most obvious risk that might put this you know nice nice debt uh, nirvana or the Alfred E. Newman world to to an end. Thanks, Patrick. We have another question that came in: How will the USA likely lower its federal debt load? And the listener gave three options. Have the Fed buy the debt and hold it, where the Fed would receive the interest rate payments and give them back to the Treasury. That's number one. Number two, the Fed buys the debt and the government writes off the debt. And then number three, engage in financial repression and hope GDP grows faster than the increase in debt. Happy happy to, uh, to, to uh, uh, take this one. Um, yeah, interesting questions about what's the end game here. I guess uh, I guess that's where this question kind of heading to. And, you know, we had a period of time, I think it was between 2013 and 2015, where there was this question of uh, cancelling debt. I know in the UK they talked about that option, but we didn't see any of this, right? The, the, last, time, um, the last time we had questions about unwinding with QE, uh, the Fed ran down its balance sheet, I would say, largely in a passive sense. It didn't actually get very far in that, in that journey. Uh, before the before the next uh, sort of recession or, or shock uh, came along, uh, but our 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 sense throughout the LTCMAs is, I'd say, linked to that third point, either uh, uh, engaging in policy tools that keep real rates very depressed relative to fundamentals, so that's financial repression argument, or actually using fiscal policy uh, actively to address the climate challenges we face. And we've seen this very, uh, very much the case here in Europe. So, you know, in the case of the U.S., uh, uh, yet to be fully determined, but, you know, we'd expect this to be a global theme, using fiscal policy more actively to address the challenges we have um, uh, on the climate side. And there we are seeing opportunities for a productive investment or, or opportunities to use technology to boost, um, boost, boost investment in that area. But I think the fundamental view, I'd say, within the LTCMA is, is a focus on keeping interest rates low to facilitate the high indebtedness and, uh, and uh, 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 eventually reflate out of the high, high debt. I don't think this will fully eradicate the levels of debt that have been built up uh, since the GFC, for example, uh, but at least helps them the, uh, the growth rate of that indebtedness. Hope that answers your question, Jim. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. So one more question here over email. Can you discuss the impact of this year's unprecedented QE by many EM central banks on both local and hard currency EM debt? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give a first pass on this one as well. Um, yeah, so EM, EM numbers this year, we saw quite a few changes. Uh, it's been a very interesting environment where for the first time, um, in a crisis, we've seen many emerging market central banks engaging in QE, so joining their DM counterparts down this road of uh, quantitative easing. It's had very different ramifications in, in EM. Uh, you know, some 
some EM countries, mostly in the Asian regions, uh, you know, in Asia, basically being rewarded for introducing QE. But actually, other areas uh, um, like uh, South Africa and uh, some LATAM countries who started QE but saw their bond yields actually in the back end of their yield curves, they saw their bond yields rising. So, you know, very dispersed reaction in market terms after the announcements of QE. We have a, a whole discussion in the paper about this idea of very dispersed um, price action and the expectations that over the next 10 to 15 years, we'll see more of the theme of winners and losers, both in QE implementation, but also how their fiscal dollars are, are, are spent and utilized to grow, uh, uh, to, to increase potential growth, but also what are the inflation implications. So seeing more dispersion within, uh, within emerging market uh, debt. How does this affect our equilibrium assumptions? We widened our hard currency uh, emerging market debt assumptions by 25 basis points to 375 basis points in equilibrium, so slightly wider to reflect this concern that uh, 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 central banks are, are there facilitating higher indebtedness and, and, redu and allowing a reduction in credit quality of the uh, components or constituents of the indices. So from a top-down perspective, that, you know, that translated into a widening of our, our spread numbers. On the local currency side, uh, more idiosyncratic, uh, I would say, but in general, uh, we have deeper yield curves. So similar to the theme we discussed on the DM bond side, where we're seeing higher inflation risk premium in DM, uh, where we built into local uh, bond, uh, uh, bond equilibrium assumptions is basically a steeper yield curve to, effect, to reflect this higher risk premium, both from inflation but also uh, from credit, uh, credit concerns or credit, uh, credit worthiness. And basically that, that leads to um, uh, a higher equilibrium uh, assumption for the uh, yield curves in, in local, local terms. Returns, though, remain pretty robust. When we look at the average expected returns, these higher equilibrium assumptions help uh, uh, you know, boost returns in the in the out years of our forecast horizon, but we would also caution that that does come with uh, with uh, you know uh, concerns on credit quality. Thanks, Vishka. Hey. Haley, have we had any questions come in over the line? At this time, speakers, there are no uh, questions in queue. Okay, so maybe we'll close with one final question that came in over email. Where? regions, industry, industries, et cetera, would you see debt load problems rearing its head first? How likely is a contagion spread? Uh, I'll take that one. Thanks, Jim. Um, I think, as, uh, as, as I already mentioned, um, you know, by, by region, the U.S., uh, we see it as having the, the biggest potential issue uh, with, with corporate then, and it's it's really been debt levels have really been um, trending up there since since really the, the middle of the middle of the decade. So it's uh, it's it's gone up pretty pretty steeply towards the later part of the of the cycle of the previous cycle, I guess I should say. Uh, by this point, what what's sort of interesting about this is that it's um, when when people look look at um, at aggregate data, it can often be it can often be quite hidden. So. Actually, if you look at aggregate um, corporate sector debt levels in the U.S., this looks so bad, um, but it's actually to a large extent hidden by all the cash that's sitting that's sitting in in, in the tech sector. So you kind of need need to adjust for that. 
Um, and if we look at the median company in the U.S. market, actually um, that level sits uh, sit at, at, a, at a record high as far as we can back data, which admittedly is only 30 years, but we're just sitting at, at record levels uh, for, for that sort of period. And it's interesting, outside the tech sector and outside the financial sector, it's actually pretty evenly, pretty evenly widely spread rising debt levels. So it's not like you'd, you'd point you'd point at, at, um, at, at one sector. What's sort of interesting is that we've seen a spike recently in the UK as well, um, which seems to be pretty broadly spread. So we still need to see if that's perhaps a, um, a little bit due to, to the Brexit disruption and uncertainty there, whether, whether, that's, whether that's one of the drivers. Um, Japan sits at the other end of, of the spectrum with low debt levels, as I already said. And it's interesting, sort of Europe, emerging markets, sort of middle of the road have been trending sideways. Not much, not much has been, has been, going, um, has been going on there. Um, when it sort of comes to, to the contagion question, I guess, um, you know, not, not that likely in our view. I mean, if we go back to the government side, you know, if we're right and central banks will be pretty aggressive here to keep this all sustainable, then I think there's very little of, of sort of contagion, contagion happening across markets. I guess in, in, in emerging markets, it's always a little bit, a little bit more possible. But on, on, the corp, on the corporate sector side, I, I think it's actually interesting if you think back about, about uh, recent history, that it's, it's pretty unlikely that, that a um, corporate sector in, in trouble really spells, spells wider trouble, unless the banking system or the financial system is somehow involved and in trouble. So I always like to compare the, the debt problem that uh, we had in the early 2000s at the, at the end of the tech bubble. That was a pretty big debt problem, and it sort of deflated slowly and peacefully over, over the next, over the next um, nearly, nearly decade. Compare that with the mayhem we had in 2008-2009 when the debt was, was uh, uh, you know, the banking system and the financial system and, and, and the, uh, uh, well, the mortgage market. So um, very, very different. And I think the good news this, this time around is that the banking system is in much better shape than last time around and, and pretty well capitalized. And um, you know, actually, we're already through the worst of this downturn and haven't seen uh, seen much in, in the way of problems. There's more to come, but you know our feeling is that with the banking system in good shape, it actually should be should be fairly contained. Great. So we will leave it there. Thank you all for joining today's call. If you'd like additional information on anything that was discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor. This is our final call for 2020 of this institutional Tuesday Thursday client call series. We will be back with more calls in 2021, but in the meantime, we wish you all a safe and happy holiday season. And with that, operator, please close out the call. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, speakers. Please stand by for the following disclosures. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. 
This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local JP Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, U.K., Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave L. in Asia-Pacific, APAP, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, Number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association. Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau. Financial Instruments Firm. Number 330. In Australia. To wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. Commonwealth. By JP Morgan Asset Management. Australia. Limited. ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 JP Morgan Chase and Company All Rights Reserved.
Thank you for joining today's conference. You may disconnect at this time.